Hey there, I'm Kristen Heratunian, and I'm an advocate, trauma survivor, and professional public speaker in and outside of the Philadelphia area. And I'm Kelly Madden, a graduate student, mental health program coordinator, and professional public speaker from upstate New York. And we're trying to figure out how we got here. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the How We Got Here podcast. This is Kelly, and I'm so excited to welcome our next guest, my friend, my former colleague, and just an all-around wonderful person I look up to, Mark Travis Rivera. Mark, please introduce yourself to folks. Hi, everyone. I am super honored to be here. I want to thank Kelly and Kirsten for the opportunity to be here. I um, am super excited. I am a professional storyteller, uh, mental health advocate, choreographer, writer, coach, all the things, creative entrepreneur, and I'm super honored to be here. No, it's seriously such a pleasure. Like as soon as Kelly brought your name up and I like did a quick little Google search, I was like, oh my gosh, like we need to reach out as soon as possible. And like, what an impressive resume, I must say. Um, Like you say, you know, professional storyteller, like what does that look like in your life? (laughs) You know, it took me a long time to like (laughs) own that and like own that like I've been doing this long enough to call myself a professional. And so for me, when I look at all that I do, the, the four pillars of activity, it's the choreography, it's the coaching, it's the speaking, it's the writing. And the through line of all that is that it's about storytelling. But whether I'm telling a story through movement, whether I'm telling stories while coaching my clients about how to own their story and how to live in their purpose, or I'm speaking in front of audiences at the Department of Defense or at Pfizer about various topics related to mental health, authenticity, inclusion, or I'm writing a book or a memoir or article talking about mental health or identity. So storytelling is the through line of all that I do. And so I told myself, why not just give myself a business name and brand that truly encompasses all that I am? And at my core, I'm a storyteller. And I just happen to be a storyteller who does this professionally and makes a living and survives doing this work. So. No, I think that's absolutely incredible. I mean, Kelly and I both, I mean, I don't want to speak for Kelly, but like I also definitely would brand myself as a professional storyteller just because, you know, like that's what I do and that's how I connect with people. And I think all of it really is about connection and, you know, looking at the similarities rather than the differences. And it can be really hard to like walk up in front of either a person or a group of people and be like, okay, let's, let's spark some connection, especially if that person might have a hard time doing that. Right. Um, yeah. So that's incredible. I mean, I, thank you. I, I think, you know, it really goes out to my mission, which is to embrace the power of story to create a more inclusive world, because I genuinely believe like you, that stories connect us. Right. And we live in such a polarizing time, both socially and politically, um, domestically and internationally, that if we just stop really listening to each other's stories, we, we stop caring about what someone like Kelly went through or someone like I went through, what you went through, Kristen, right? We just stop caring to listen. And I, I have found that there are more similarities between us, things that connect us than there are things that divide us. And at the end of the day, we all want to be able to love, to feel a sense of belonging, to be seen and heard for exactly who we are without having to suppress or deny who we are. And at the end of the day, we all want to feel a sense of belonging. And so I believe that stories connect us and that there is more in common with one another that connects our humanness than not. I love that. I love that you're talking about like collective action, being in a collective. Obviously, we live in a culture that's completely the opposite. In the U.S., at least it's all about individualism. But that being said, I feel like the three of us like have a common thread of like we didn't feel that community so much when we were growing up, but we do more now as adults and we found our communities. And of course, I know a lot about your story, Mark, but mm. can can you share with the listeners about like what it was like for you growing up, where you're from, yeah. and just how you found community as an adult that maybe you didn't have as a young person? Yeah, and how I got here. Um, yeah, I love that. <laughs> you know, I... Um... I was born disabled. My mom gave birth to me at five and a half months. 
and I weighed one pound. I'm not going to tell you how much I weigh now, but it's a lot more than one pound. And I developed a condition called cerebral palsy. And for me, it affects me from the hips down. And it caused me to know what it meant to be othered and different from the jump. And while I'm starting to unpack this in therapy, I'm not going to go too deep into this. I realized some of my trauma in life began the very moment I tried to take my first breath. And that while I don't remember my birthing trauma, I feel it in my body every single day with my condition. And so when I think about how my disability has informed my sense of understanding of identity, my sense of self-actualization and belonging, before I knew what race was as a construct, before I understood sexuality and gender expression, I knew I was different because my feet were crippled. I walked with inverted feet. I knew what it meant to trip over my own two feet. After every few steps, I have to be embarrassed and pick myself back up from the ground with scraped knees, a bruised head, and a bruised ego. I know what it's like to be called a freak in third grade because I walk funny. I knew what it was like to sit on the sidelines in gym and have to write in my journal because I couldn't play the activity that was happening in that moment. I know what it's like not to belong. But I grew up in a black and brown community in the inner city of Patterson, New Jersey. Uh, shout out to my Jersey folks listening to the podcast. And I remember my family not really treating me any different. I was just like everyone else, except that when I fell, people perked up a little bit more. When I had an asthma attack, when I had doctor's appointments to get orthopedic braces, all the extra attention I was getting, I started to clean up that to myself. I started to do chores, right? I started to get good grades at school. And so my mother, bless her heart, she had me at 22 years old. I can't even imagine being a parent at 22. I can't even imagine ever being a parent in my life, but especially at 22, right? And so my mother, who never finished high school, who never went to college, who was a teen mom at 16 and later had me at 22, for her, she became my biggest advocate. And that's for a later part of the conversation, but to go from my biggest advocate to one of my biggest um, opposing forces in my life, right? So it's been interesting how the person who so desperately wanted me, my godmother said that um, before having me, my mom had a couple of miscarriages and that my mom wanted me so bad, she would have taken me in pieces. So she took this crippled child home after several months in the ICU and she became my biggest advocate. And so that's kind of about how I got here, right? And how I became a disabled choreographer and created a dance company for disabled and non-disabled dancers in New Jersey at 17 years old, becoming the youngest person in the U.S. to ever do so. And one of the few people of color, excuse me, of color. And I kind of went on this journey. And, you know, Kelly, you and I met through uh, a former organization we both worked at and that shall remain nameless. Um, but what was really interesting to me was that I'm launching the storytelling lab that I was trying to launch a version of this for the organization. And I remember sitting in these meetings with these people and them telling me they didn't see the value of this lab. And I realized they never saw the value of me. And so they were never gonna see the value of any of my ideas. And now that I'm pitching this lab to other organizations like College Track and other uh, nonprofits throughout the country, there's a level of excitement that that particular leadership and that particular person, that particular organization couldn't see, right? And so I'm excited that every road I've ever taken, every bruised knee, every embarrassing moment has led me to where I am today. Wow. I mean, I am just like blown away by your, not just like your transparency and your empathy, right? But like your ability to share all of that in a way that is like, I don't know, I'm having trouble coming up with the right words because like I am drawn in on every single word that you say. I understand now why that you are calling yourself a storyteller <laughs> because I'm like, I need them to talk more. I need them to talk more because like, like those are not my experiences, but I relate mm -hmm. so much to like, you know, just like the bruised ego and the feelings and like people looking at you different. Like, I mean, like, I am just like, you are an incredible human being. Oh, like, and, and not just because of like the shit that you went through, but like 
just because like you have this desire to like give back to the community. I mean, you know, I've seen so many individuals throughout my my career and just throughout my life that, you know, and I'm one of those people too. I'm guilty of it where like I just wear it as like a chip on my shoulder and I'm like, well, yeah. like and I don't like anybody anymore and I'm not going to let anybody in. And um, you know, the fact that uh you know, you're able to advocate but also you talked about therapy and and you talked about like still taking care of yourself. Um, you know, it sounds like that you may not have fallen into the trap of, you know, well, now I'm just going to give back and that's going to be my therapy. You know what I mean? Like there's. Oh, no, I will never. <laughs> I will never be not in therapy. It, I may take short breaks because obviously I've been in therapy since I was in 20, since I was a freshman in college. It's since 2010. Uh, I'm, I'm currently in a, in a short term therapeutic process that's going to really ramp up the new year and be pretty intense. We're doing some trauma exposure stuff and uh, which I'm not looking forward to, but I'm also looking forward to. And so I signed up for this, this therapeutic process because I'm getting ready to write my memoir, my book proposal and try to get a literary agent. And the book is entitled crippled, but not broken a manifesto for those who have fallen down because nothing has taught me more about being resilient and having grit and having tenacity and a stubbornness more than my crippled feet. And every time I fell back, I fell off my feet or lost my balance or checked off a bike or fell over a sidewalk or tried to ride a bike and terribly almost crashed into a car, right? All these things, what I learned through that process was how to pick myself back up. And while I wish I didn't always have to be resilient, while I wish that we lived in a world where people of color, where women, where disabled folks, where LGBTQ folks could just exist without having to fight for their rights constantly, um, I recognize that we all fall down, right? If To be human means to fall, to fail, right? To fumble. But so many people struggle to get back up. And so this book, this memoir manifesto, written in three sections, crippled at birth, crippled um, crippled at love, and then the last section, crippled but not broken, the manifesto, would really be about a young adult memoir about a queer Latinx disabled kid who is learning or has is still in the process of learning and becoming how to be fully himself unapologetically and how to stop harping on his deficits and start to embrace his full and imperfect self. So it's a journey. I'm never not gonna have a therapist. I'm never not gonna have a business coach. I'm never not gonna have a support system, right? There is, there's a wall behind me for those watching the video of people I admire. And, you know, every year I pick a word, this year was the year of me, right? How would I, what life would I build if I were to take that leap of entrepreneurship and believe in myself? And I always say there would be no year of me without we, without the people in my community who held me down, who picked me back up when my own feet were too weary, when the words, I am not enough, kept playing over my head over and over again, when I allowed white women and other organizations to tell me that I wasn't valuable, that they didn't see my potential, that I was too problematic. Uh, and so you start to internalize those messages when the society around tells you, you are not enough. You're not man enough. You're not smart enough. You're not talented enough. Well, guess what? I'm not the most talented speaker, writer, coach, choreographer but I still get booked and I get to make a living as a creative entrepreneur, not because I'm the most talented, because I am hardworking, I'm committed to my craft, I'm committed to living in my purpose. And that has made all the difference for me. I call it the J-Lo effect. She might be the most talented person in the room, but Jennifer Lopez stays booked, busy and blessed, okay? Period. There's like nothing else to say. Podcast is over, bye everyone. Woo! My for, real, for real I love that so many like chunks of things that stuck out to me and everything you just <laughs> yeah. said I'm like I think like the first thing that stood out to me at least um Kristen you probably get this when you visit school so I've made a career shift um and I'm a provisionally licensed school social worker I've found my passion I'm just like yeah. I just love being in school with these young people all day. Well, bless you, bless your heart. Someone today, 
today I didn't today Kristen called me and I was like I just broke up a fight at work yeah, for I was about the to first say, didn't time you, didn't you just get not you you didn't get in the fight but didn't you just break up a fight and it was a girl fight those are the worst like oh, boys yeah. boys just like it's kind of like a one and done and then everyone like dispersed but girls it's just like boom but it's just I laugh now because like after it happened I was laughing hysterically because I was like wow and it lingers, right? Like when women fight, I find that it like lingers. It doesn't just end with the swinging. And, the and people and recorded it. So it's just yeah. circulating. Yeah. These kids are feral. Um, no, they, they, they're different. It's different than when the three of us were in school. Um, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I would never want to be a child. I, we grew up. Well, I'm a little older than, than Kelly. So I'm, gonna, I'm actually, I don't know how old you are, Kristen, but I'm definitely a lot older than Kelly. Okay. So I'm a lot older than both of y'all. You're and not so, like, a lot older. Kelly, I'm going into my Jesus year next year. So, you know, <laughs> I'm a little bit older than y'all. And I say that because I grew up in that cusp where we were just learning how to type on a keyboard, but we still had to know how to write in cursive. We still, we still know, we still knew what it meant to go outside and play and come back home before the sun, the sun went down. And we also know what it meant to wait until after nine o'clock for three minutes to call your friends, right? Uh-huh. So like, I had that weird thing where like, we had just started learning about computers and LimeWire and social media, MySpace and all these things, but my life wasn't dominated by it. And mm-hmm. so for Gen Z, for the younger generations, you know, I, I don't know how their mental health is any kind of balanced or stable because they're constantly bombarded with stimulants and messaging that tells them they are not enough. Absolutely well, agree. Well, it's interesting that you were talking about the narrative that you, you know, that most of us can have. And, you know, I have like these key phrases that I, when I'm in a, not a good place, they mm. really just hone in on me. And like, I went through an experience the other day where like my first thought was I am stupid and I am a disappointment, which are like mm. very specific phrases, which were passed down from my wonderful mother. Um, rip but you know like it's just really interesting how like that piece is still so woven into my core belief systems but only when i'm going through a difficult time um which is why you know like a support system is incredible i was on the phone with my girlfriend for like an hour and she had to like talk me out of my the lie that i am a disappointment but you know i i don't know like kids these days which sounds like such a old person thing to say because i'm only 25 but i do see Ooh. these children with like this stimulant in their hands like 24 7 and i'm like no wonder why you're anxious you're anxious because you're seeing everything that's happening all over the world 24 7. i didn't know what was going on all the way across the country unless i picked up a newspaper or my dad put the tv on at nine o'clock at night to watch the news like i didn't get that on my cell phone at six in the morning as soon as i'm waking up so i totally hear that i think the biggest no go ahead mark no 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 go ahead i was just gonna say i think the biggest trend that i've noticed and i've worked in a few schools in my area now and worked with um students at other schools from various places that the former um, organization mark and i worked at the biggest takeaway and lesson that they've shown me is there is such a lack of resiliency and teaching and education is not focused around resiliency and supporting the development of that at every age. And I just like, obviously you need to teach skills like pure conflict happens. Like we're going to get through this friends. It's going to be okay. But then it really, it's at another level now. Yeah. And I just feel like, I mean, I did not have by any means, did I grow up going to a school that taught anything social, emotional related? I don't think any of us did, but um, I still like had resiliency when I was facing, you know, like a level of peer conflict or a level of conflict with like a family member or a teacher. Like I still felt like I could handle that, but not. In 2023, it just, I I think the pandemic, you know, is related to that, but. Yeah, I mean, we were already going through a a downward spiral of loneliness as an epidemic in this country, right? Across age demographics, long before the pandemic. I think the pandemic just exacerbated the issue or kind of shone a light on it more than we all realized. But I think, you know, I I don't think that this generation has less of the ability to be resilient 
I think that like us, they're not being taught this as much as they should be. And while they have more access to resources to learn how to do it, they're still being raised by people in our generations who never had that, who, you know, who think that beating your child into compliance is a form of love, who think that it's okay for people to fight when they're angry because, you know, they see their parent hitting their other parent at home when they're angry, right? And so we're all kind of going through the same thing. And I, and I think what's happening is that it's not they have a lower threshold for the ability to be resilient, is that the amount of pressure on them is very different than what you and I all had growing up, right? Like we still had outdoors. We still had time to disconnect to your point, Kristen, around how they're constantly plugged into all the problems of the world. And you know what? You bombarded me with advertisements, with commercials growing up about, you know, what it meant to be non-disabled or what it meant to be normal and what it meant to be cool. And I was never any of those things, right? But imagine if I was walking around every single day with a device in my hand that told me, you're not good enough, you're not smart enough, you're not desirable enough, you're not worthy enough. That is what social media is doing. That is what the world messaging is, right? When we have our political leaders telling us that some people are from shithole countries or that some people should be banned because of what their faith is, or we are having a, a modern day genocide happening overseas, right? All of these things impact people, but we always think that's not me. That's over there. That's on the other side of the world. But guess what? You see images of people and children being pulled from the rubble. That impacts your mental health. That impacts your perception of self. That impacts if you see a brown body being dragged out of the rumble or debris. And others around you are saying, they have it coming or that a particular country has a right to defend itself, right? At the expense of innocent lives. And so it, it gets heavy. It gets heavy when you think about mental health. And then you add to the fact that like, yeah, they have more access to mental health resources, but the stigma hasn't shifted much. You know, mental health stigma is still there. When I talk about suicide ideation being a pervasive thing in my life, People still raise an eyebrow. When I say that I've never worked harder in my life and been more stressed in this first year of entrepreneurship and most fulfilled I ever felt in my life, people are like, well, you're fulfilled. Why are you stressed? Or what do you mean you, you, you're you lacking inspiration right now or you're lacking motivation because you're depressed because you're working so hard, but the cash flow is an issue. Like all of that is real, right? And so for me to be able to say, I am a public speaker, an advocate, and I also struggle with my mental health every single day. It's not an oxymoron, right? But we live in a world that wants to look at people like me and project onto this pedestal. And I'm just like, no, no, no. I never have to be put on a pedestal, right? I'm imperfect. I, I want to be a possibility model. I want to show someone what's possible when they choose to embrace themselves and live in their truth and be honest with themselves and those around them about their issues, but I don't want to be a role model. And I've had to learn how to navigate these spaces. I mean, there are times when, and I'm no one, right? In the scheme of things, my circle, my impact is very small, but I happen to have somewhat of a platform and I happen to go places sometimes people recognize me and it always surprises me when it happens. And I'm just like, I'm just little old Mark from Jersey who somehow managed to live this grand life that I shouldn't be able to live, but I live it. And, you know, sometimes it's very humbling, but it also has made me realize, to your point earlier on the people I admire wall, I've had to take some people off the wall. <laughs> and I've had to learn how to be more selective with the people I invite into my inner circles. But I have three rings of circle. There's the associate outer circle, there's the middle circle where a lot of folks are, and then there's the inner circle. And for some reason, living in Atlanta, I had to build a lot more community. And so people were kind of they're passing my filters a little too soon and they were getting too close to the inner circle without being worthy of being in the inner circle. And I've had to learn over the last few days, especially not everyone who says they care about you genuinely cares about you. And when they say they care about you, but their actions show you otherwise, don't get stuck on the words they speak, but evaluate how they behave around you and when you're not around. And I think that, you know, we all want to be liked, we all want to be loved and embraced, but 
I'm not always going to be liked. I'm not always going to be embraced. And guess what? I'm not everyone's cup of tea. And not everyone has to sit that tea. You know, they have other options out there. So if nothing else, take that away from, from this conversation is that you won't be everyone's cup of tea. For those of you, for those of the people who love you and see you for exactly who you are and they want to indulge in your presence, they will be able to receive what you pour into them. Yeah, those are the people that like really energize you the people that like enjoy your tea you know because like you yeah. hopefully enjoy theirs too and it's yes. and it's like really you know after i spend time with which it's only like three people in my life but like oh. once i spend time with those people i feel like so much better than when i like walked in and it's just it's so cool like I don't know. And, and the whole pedestal thing, like never put me on a pedestal. Cause if you're to yeah. do that, then, you know, the higher you put me, the fall, the longer I'll fall. So, yeah. you know, we're all just like human beings trying to figure it out. Like I was having yeah. a conversation with somebody a couple of days ago and it was like, I can't believe I'm like an adult, um, like an adult human who like pays bills and, you know, like <laughs> has like a bank account and, but I don't know how and a, it happened. And a, and, a, and a business account. I have a business right, account. Right, right. You have a business account. Like, I was like, cool, what? Yeah. But it's wild. I can't even imagine being a parent. Like, God bless parents and people who are parents or parent figures because that shit is not for the weak. And it's not for those who want to do it right. Uh, if, you know, it's hard. And, you know, whether you have fur babies or real babies, it's, it's a lot of work. <laughs> I, and I have neither for that exact reason. Because I can barely take care of myself. Like, there are times when I'm so exhausted from the work day, I legit will order Wendy's. I'm trying to get on my health track, so, you know, I'm cutting back on that. <laughs> but, like, and there are times when I make a really great, healthy meal, like I did last night for me and my friends. And so, but I can't imagine every day having to feed another mouth that isn't my own. And I I'm, like, responsible for, you know I have I'm no idea like, how they do it. Um either. Personally, like, I cook for me and my partner most days. And even that, I'm, like, I sometimes at like three o'clock I'll think to myself like tonight's not the night I'm not cooking we're gonna get something else we're gonna get takeout we have the privilege to do that right but like yeah, yeah. I can't I can't imagine like having to be responsible for something that you know either I've said that I'm going to take care of this thing or you know it came out of my body or came out of somebody else's body like I, I just yeah I, I cannot imagine yeah and, I, and it's interesting I was just having a conversation with a colleague a new colleague named um, Manuela and she had said something about healed ancestors. And it was the first time that I heard that that phrase in that way. And we were talking about like leaning on our ancestors for like great generational cycles of trauma and things like that. And she says, you know, I call I call on my healed ancestors, people who were starting to break cycles in their own lives, in their own time, that led me to where I am today. And I thought that was so interesting when we talk about mental health, especially in our families or chosen families, and, you know, Kelly, I heard your story about how you navigated your mental health with family and in a split household. And, you know, I, I can't imagine, I'm the first one in my family to go to therapy and I broke that cycle. First one to graduate high school, first one to graduate college, first to be a creative entrepreneur. And I don't say that to brag, but now I have two out of three of my immediate family relatives in therapy. We're constantly doing the work, right? And so I know that that is only possible because I have started the process of breaking those cycles, right? My niece will be the second generation to graduate college and the first not to become a teen mom, right? In our immediate family. And so she's breaking those cycles, right? And so then we are leaning on our healed ancestors to keep pushing us forward. And then when I transition to the other side, then my lineage, my relatives will be able to call on me as a healed ancestor saying, Call on this person. Let's keep breaking these cycles. And, you know, I'm not perfect. And God knows I am annoying as hell for a lot of people. But, you know, what I will say, and again, it's okay. Um, what I saw Kelly's face. What I will say is that I am so fortunate to be loved by many. You know, my friend Shy, my former roommate in California, she said, most people are lucky they have one or three really good friends. You have a whole fucking wall full of people who would bend over backwards to hold you in moments of darkness so they can shine a light for you. I have so many firefly friends, so many people who also light up around me, who light up, who light up, who remind me that when my light is feeling dimmed, I don't have to shine the bright, I just have to keep shining. 
And those firefighter friends, the people on the wall, people across my communities around the world, I'm so fortunate for them because it's it's easy to get lost in the sauce. Um, and it's it's hard to to live out your dreams and to live your purpose when you live in a world that says someone like you doesn't deserve to to take up space. That you are simply to be seen and not heard. Yeah. I so appreciate that. I often like, you know, when we have folks on the podcast, all of the wonderful folks who have joined us so far, like I like to try and imagine them as a teenager or like mm. not not a child, right? Like a teenager, a tween. Um, not only oh, does that give me. <laughs> no, you can still only do that. Tween, teen. I used to be a twink and now I'm just sick. It's okay. I'm never going to be a twink again in my life. It's okay. I embrace it. I'm <laughs> pulling it together. That is gold. <laughs> yes, twinks included. Yes. I like to try and imagine folks as young people, not only to, you know, like promote like more empathy. I want to get to know. I want folks to feel comfortable when they join us, but also because like, I just so wish that the younger versions of ourselves could like be here in the room as an extra person to hear how Mm. far that we've come. So I always like to ask guests and some some form of this question I like to ask folks like what is one thing that you would tell like 12 or 13 year old Mark that is such a tough age in general what is one thing you would tell little Mark about what you're doing now as an adult to like kind of promote that healing promote that resiliency promote breaking those cycles like what's one thing he would want to hear I'm so mad at you, Kelly, because I was always so good about not crying. I, I have a habit of crying when I do a lot of podcast interviews, especially about like touchy subjects. And so I told myself today, don't cry, bitch. Don't cry. I'm trying not to curse too much, but don't cry. And- Please, this <laughs> you are welcome to curse. Please cry and, like, and let it go. And you know, it's so interesting because when we originally wanted to do this interview, I think last week, I was not in a good headspace. I was not good in, in a good mental health space. I was having Severe depression flare-ups, low energy. I was dreading the interview because I was just like, I have to talk about mental health when I'm not feeling well mental health-wise. But I know our schedules are tight, so I didn't want to reschedule. And then y'all had to reschedule. And I was like, oh, thank you, universe! Because I was not in a good headspace for the interview. Today, I totally am. I'm like, all oh, glammed up. I'm, I'm here. I'm, 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 I'm ready to go. You know, in my eighth grade yearbook, to go back, because middle school were the worst years for me. It's when I realized I was gay. It's when I had surgery for my operate for my legs to improve my mobility. It's when I really realized that I wanted to be a writer. And so I remember writing my middle school yearbook that I want to graduate college and become a published writer, an author. And by the time I was in my 20s, I did exactly that. Right. And there's still so much more I'm going to do. And there's still so much more ahead of me. And I started kind of young, right? My career started when I was 17. Um, I wasn't a normal teenager. I wasn't a regular kid growing. I had to grow up really fast. And so there are parts of me that would tell little middle school Mark. One, you will find your sense of fashion. You will stop being awkward. Lord knows I was super awkward in middle school. You will learn to embrace your queerness. You would learn to accept that you may be crippled, but that you are not broken goods. That you are not something that someone that has to be a dejected object thrown away from the manufacturing line of human life because you are crippled and different and queer and imperfect. And you will go on to become a published author and a college graduate. And that every day you will still struggle. That depression will become a constant companion. That anxiety will come to visit. And when the companion and the visitor are there, you will think and ideate about the end. But every day you will choose to live. 
and on the darkest moments, when the shame gremlins are loud as hell, you will have the courage to reach out for help. And so your darkest days are ahead of you, but your light will continue to shine bright. That's what I would tell him. You know, I, uh, I had this therapist and she told me very similar to what you shared that she wanted me to, to carry or to have just a photo of myself as a child and to have that with me and somebody else in my family, I won't out him, but he does the same thing too. And he's been doing it for quite some time. And she said to me, whenever you find yourself like talking down to yourself or you're in a position where you feel completely alone and like a horrible person and that you are irredeemable, that you look at that little girl and you say that to her. And I could never find mm. myself to do that because if I could have compassion for her, she is a part of me and she always will be. Um, you know, I find that, uh, you know, I'm not like a psychiatrist, I'm not a therapist, but uh, I've always found that that healing of the inner child is probably one of the hardest things that I've been gone into in my endeavors, but yeah, probably yeah. one of the most rewarding things that I've ever done for myself. Because whenever I'm in a situation where I'm experiencing, you know, how you talked about like those deepest, darkest pains and you know, the dark days ahead that it's just this little girl like asking for help. Um, she just doesn't have like the voice ability to do so. And like, I can almost parallel that to the kids that we see today that like they are in their sort of era in their place where they are asking for help, but having wild stuff happening and they're unable to do it. I mean, do you find that, um, especially with choreography, do you find that that's a way in which you can like sort of express those feelings, but also do it in maybe like a playful manner where, you know, that, that can be expressed? Yeah. I mean, my creative outlet, I am probably the best creatively when I'm having the hardest moment or the most heartbreak. Um, an eight year situationship just ended a few weeks ago. And so I have been, yo-yoing between sadness and deep rage, um, regret and gratitude, um, excitement about the future and prospect of my dating life, and also uh, upset that here I am, always the friend, never the lover. And, um, you know, it's really interesting that, you know, you talk about how I have outlets and, and my creative work is my outlet, right? My, my writing, my social media content, my videos, um my choreography my speaking my my podcasting that I do with my friend the mommy podcast you know all of these things all makes me who I am and so I am someone that is an external verbal processor of feelings I need to externally process it which is why talk therapy is so important in my life but then somatically I need to move my body so that once I'm talking about these heavy things if I move my body, it won't stay in my body. The, 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 the emotions that are triggered in me won't stay there stiffening me up, right? I'm able to move through those aches and those soreness and the, and the stiffness and, and kind of get all of that kind of expression out. So moving my body daily is important. Daily walks, going to the gym, um, just dancing randomly while I'm, you know, in my house or cleaning or in between meetings and just moving my body is such an important part of of my healing process and you know what I want to remind everyone is that our inner child is always going to be there and not just our inner child but every version that we've been before the version we are today and every version of you deserves your grace your self-compassion your love your empathy I don't talk to my friends or clients the way I talk to myself my self-talk is so damn critical you would think I was a serial killer. The way I speak to myself, like you would think that I am the scum of the earth and that I go around killing people and that I am just unworthy of existing because that is what my self-talk does. It goes from 
I did something bad to I am bad real quick. It goes from I made a mistake to you are a mistake. Right, that's how quick my self-talk goes. And so I've been working a lot on with my therapist on how, learning how to self-regulate and to reframe. And <laughs> reframing has become a major tool for me this year because throughout the lowest points of this year and the highest points of this year, my self-talk was the same. You are unworthy. You are an imposter. Mind you, while I was failing and while I was succeeding, the self-talk was the same. So I was like, well, damn, there's no winning here, right? Because when I'm losing, I'm losing. When I'm winning, I'm still losing, right? And so what I had to learn was the height of success that I've reached this year have made me feel so vulnerable because now I keep thinking, oh, I'm getting more exposure. I'm hitting these milestones. I'm becoming more successful. Eventually, people are going to find out that I'm a fraud, that I'm unworthy, that I'm a terrible human being, right? Or that I can't believe this is happening, that rather than leading into the vulnerability of that joy and excitement, I am foreshadowing or, or trying to foreshadow the, my demise, right? That I can be succeeding really well in my, in my professional life and failing miserably in my personal life. And just because I'm failing my personal life doesn't mean I'm failing in every area of my, of my life, right? And so I'm learning how to reframe myself, talk to be more, more kind to myself and to truly speak to myself the way I would speak to a friend like Kelly or anyone else who I care about, right? Like, I would never talk to a friend or a colleague or even a stranger, to be honest, the way I speak to myself. And so reframing, moving my body, talk therapy, external processing, journaling, have a gratitude journal. I write in it every single day, three things I'm grateful for every single day. And it's hard to be anxious when you're practicing gratitude. And when yeah. I allow gratitude to anchor me, everything seems possible. Everything seems like I can get through anything. Gratitude is so important. Um, you know, I have also found that gratitude journals, I always like start and stop and start and stop. Cause like, that's just how I roll. But, you know, I, I do find that like, it can really like help that imposter syndrome that you talked about. Like, yes, yes, there it is. I love this is my second gratitude journal. So I started this in 2020 at the height of the pandemic when my anxiety was really bad. And Oprah has been telling me to do it for years. Uh, not just me, but everyone in the world. But And so there are times when I skip a couple of days, but I try every day, faithfully, especially during the weekday, I try to start my day like this. Before I have coffee, before I open my emails, I do this. What did and you write I'll today? Share, I'll just, I'm going to show you what I wrote today. Because it's very, actually, I don't, oh, here I am. I wrote, uh... I am grateful for Lauren and our friendship. Lauren's my friend who came over for dinner yesterday and she gave me some uh, my, my Christmas gift early and it's some amazing stuff that she helped me with my sleep last night. And then I was grateful for my, my Uber driver today, Keisha, who drove me back and forth from Starbucks to my house because it was really cold and I was busy and I needed coffee. And she was so pleasant and warm. And the third thing I wrote that I was grateful for was the rest that I got last night. Last night was the most sleep I've gotten probably in, in the last month. And so it was wonderful to just get, to wake up feeling rested. Wow. You know, and it's like simple thing. Just like it's it a really be... nice feeling to feel rested. Yeah. It's like the yeah. best feeling in the world. I think that I am grateful for I stopped at Starbucks today. Um and the employees, yes, yes, yes. The the oh, wait, individuals no, this, this is not sponsored. This is not sponsored. No, by no, <laughs> it's not sponsored by Starbucks. But I legit have like three Starbucks cups because it's been that kind of day. So it That's is That's amazing. It is. Um yeah, I'm grateful for Starbucks and the employees that worked there because they were very kind to me. And yeah. um that was really nice. I'm grateful that I have a vehicle that can take me safely from point A, which is Philadelphia to point B, which is Pittsburgh. And I am very grateful for um, my partner, Tim, for always being really understanding and supportive of me mm. and, my, and my goals. How about you, Kelly? What are yeah. you grateful for? Yeah, what are you grateful for today? Oh, it's been bananas. Um, I'm grateful for, <laughs> I know I say this in every job I've had, you've both heard it, but I'm grateful for my colleagues and my coworkers because when stuff happens at work throughout the day and you're able to sit down with them or look at them and you don't have to utter a word and they just see you and just look mm. at you and you can laugh or you're just, you both look at each other like, you want a bag of Cheetos? Yeah, you got a bag of Cheetos. Just those simple little moments you share together while you're like in it day to day. I'm I'm very grateful for them. 
Um, I'm grateful for my mom. We had dinner last night. It was really nice. Um, you know, my mom and I are close and Mark, you heard a little bit more about my childhood, but, um, it's like hard to, as an adult, have a closeness, I guess, and a bond still that we had when I was younger. Um, so I'm just grateful we got to spend time together and share a meal last night. And then the third thing I'm grateful for when my paycheck hits, because that was, that was a whole debacle this week. So I need to pay my utility bill. And that's what I'll be grateful for when that's not yeah. on my back. <laughs> so in full transparency, that's what I'm grateful for. <laughs> yeah. Let me tell you, you know, I, I also want to say this, Kelly, because I, I know I've said it to you privately, but I, I think it's important to say it to you publicly. Um, but the moment I met you, Kelly, you saw me. And you didn't see me as a threat. You didn't see me as the problematic diversity hire that they would try to frame me as at that organization. Um, you saw the potential of the impact I could have for the students and the organization as a whole. And even though I was only there for like three months, legit, before I quit, some of the things I recommended have been implemented, right? That person was demoted and they hired a separate person to come in and, and do that role and that portion of their portfolio. And if that was why God of the universe set me to active minds besides meeting you and some other people that I'm so connected with, then that was worth it because it meant that I was able to make a difference even when they didn't see my value, even when they didn't see my worthiness. You know, and it also was a huge lesson for me in learning that one, not all white women who are democratic leaning, so-called feminist progressives are really allies. Um, to me, the most dangerous person in America isn't the white uneducated rural man living in the farmland in the middle of nowhere, America, who's a Trump supporter. The most dangerous person in America is the educated white woman who claims to know better and wants to do better, but doesn't do better, it means questioning or jeopardizing her own power. And so I recognize that you as a white woman have always used your positionality and privilege to amplify people like me, to center us despite the constant marginalization in the field that we work in. And I just wanna thank you for that because I know that came at a great deal of sacrifice for you. I know it made you the unlikable white woman. It made you, the annoying white woman for some people. It made you the the, the activist white woman for some people out of the, at the organization. And so I recognize that that came at a cost. Um, but everyday people like you remind me that while it may be hard, I'm not alone in this movement. So I just want to thank you for that. I'm grateful for you. Oh, I'm grateful for you, my friend. It is never at a cost to be your friend and colleague. Wow. Never, never was it a cost. It is their loss. And I also, after a year plus of therapy, I'm able to look back and see the lessons and see and be grateful yeah. for those really high points. And um, I'm very grateful to be in touch with a lot of those students still who are now off to college and off to graduate school and are out there in the streets doing the work. They truly yeah. are. So just grateful for those young people. Grateful for you. Grateful yeah. for you too, Kristen. And um yeah, it's been a great conversation, folks. Um, before yes, we <laughs> like check out, um, where can the people find you, Mark? What are you up to? Where can they follow you? Um, what's on your plate, like right this moment that they can support? Yeah, well, my I'll send you the link, my link tree link, so you can put that because that has my social media, my email, my podcast. Spotify playlist. People can listen to all the appearances I've done, which I'll add this podcast to that playlist. Uh, my TEDx talk is on there. They can set up my newsletter. They can connect with me on LinkedIn. Um, what's in the works? So I am currently working on developing the curriculum and program design for the First Generation Storytellers Lab, which will be a six-week immersive, uh, two hours per week um, experience for high school, college, recent college grads, and young professionals who all identify as first gen. 
uh, whether they're the first people in their family on track to go to college, the first one to go to college, the first one to graduate college, or the first one to graduate college to become a professional in their field, in their families. And it's going to be to help them embrace the power of their story so they can create a more inclusive world in their communities. And the hope is that when I run these five pilots simultaneously in the fall of 2024, we will do an assessment and data analysis that then will help us improve the curriculum. And then this program curriculum will be available for people um, to purchase. Either they can hire me to do it for them, or they can do a train-the-trainer model where I train someone in their region to implement this curriculum. And the project right now that they're going to be doing is developing their own TEDx talk um, about whatever topic around their life and their story that they want to lean on. And, you know, when people call me a motivational speaker, I cringe because I'm not that. While you may be inspired and motivated when you hear me speak, I don't just simply talk about the woes and, and, and lows of my life. I'm educated. I, I train in this, right? I'm a trained academic social scientist, and I specialize in talking about gender and sexuality and intersectionality and disability in the arts and all these things. And I simply use my lived experience as a vehicle for understanding so that when people talk about these big concepts like intersectionality or you know marginalization or compounded shame, they can see that in real life terms, not just theoretical frameworks, right? They see the real life implications of the work that I'm teaching them about. And so I'll continue to do speaking engagements. I'm, I'm hoping that in 2024, I'll have the opportunity to do a TEDx talk. I it will, mark, it will mark 10 years next year that I did my first TEDx talk. And so I kind of want to do, not like a retrospective, but the first one was called Embracing Yourself, Embracing Your Potential and how when you learn to embrace every part of who you are, you unlock your potential for success. But now I feel like, okay, well, I taught them through that process to unlock their potential for success. Now, what happens when you start becoming successful? What happens when you start honoring the calling of your life? Life doesn't just get easier. In some ways, it gets a lot harder. And so how do you make sure that you're living purposely and authentically? And so that's what I'm hoping to work on in next year, as well as getting a book agent for my memoir and selling it to a major publishing house. Um, I have two choreographic works that I'm working on next year that will premiere. I can't give too much detail about that right now, but one is in Miami in March that will premiere. And one I'm working on in January that will premiere in June in San Francisco for the largest queer and trans arts festival in the country. That's all I can say for now. Um, and yeah, so I'm just gonna keep working and, and doing my damn thing and growing my business and growing my impact and hopefully get Oprah to interview me or, you know, hit the national stage and and go from there. Mark, we couldn't be more great, more grateful to have you on. Um, thank you so, so, so oh, thank much you. Um, for taking the time and and sharing and having our listeners know just like a little bit more about you. So we'll link all that information once we post the episode. But thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you all so much. Be well. Thank you both.